Take your girlie to the movies If you can't make love at home There's no little brother there who always squeals You can do an awful lot in seven reels Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 185. My name's Terry Frost, and this time around we're doing a comedy and a drama together. One from 1968, and that is Putney Swope, directed by Robert Downey Sr. And then we go back to 1958 for a movie I've been wanting to do for the podcast for a fair while, and that is Otto Preminger's Bonjour Tristesse, starring Gene Seberg, Deborah Carr, and David Niven. So we go from a satire of Madison Avenue mad men kind of um, advertising to a movie about a 17-year-old girl and a very important and life-changing event that happens on a summer in the south of France. So um, I'll get the contact details out of the way, then I'll get back and we'll start talking about movies. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic film appreciation. The rules are pretty easy to remember. Each episode has to talk about two movies in it, and the movies have to be over 20 years old. Apart from that, they can be of any genre. Podcasts thrive on feedback, so you can send emails or MP3 voicemails to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U. You can go over to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook or take a look at paleo-cinema.blogspot.com iTunes reviews are also welcome. To support the podcast financially, you can head over to patreon.com slash paleocinema. Well, I'd like to acknowledge the Korongjang Baluk and Mapiang Baluk people, the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording the podcast, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. This podcast may contain adult words and concepts, so if you play it with small children around, expect to answer some uncomfortable questions later. Okay, so how is everybody doing? Um, we're doing fine here, basically because it's my birthday today. Yep, I haven't quite reached a zero number in my birthdays, but uh, that's next year. But it is my birthday, and Sally and I went out for a lunch at a really nice burger joint we know, which does not have a drive through And um, we're kind of grooving on that. The Facebook messages, of course, are blasting through from all around the planet. So I'm getting a lot of love at the moment. We're up around 100 birthday messages so far. And the Americans are just waking up. So, you know, that's pretty damn good. And um, I'm, I'm fine with the birthday. It doesn't worry me. There's not uh, really a lot I can do about it. But, um, yeah, so I'm having quite a good one. I can't recall whether I've ever podcasted on my birthday before. But uh, it comes around once every seven years that uh, you have a birthday on a Sunday, well, it's an approximation, of course. So, um, yeah, uh, I'm doing it anyway. I'm sharing the love. I am a river to my people. Everything is fine. Uh, so I haven't actually been watching a hell of a lot of movies, and there's a very good reason why. Sally and I went to Sydney last week, a journey which was not without features of interest. Our car, the headlights stopped working. There was a problem with the... Um, the little lever on the side of the steering wheel that controls the headlights. So we had to hire a car to go to Sydney in, which, of course, engendered further expense. So we got a really nice little Mitsubishi SUV. And for reasons best known to me, because it was my idea, we started driving the 900-kilometre distance to Sydney at 1 in the morning. Now, for those in America who don't know what 900 kilometres is, 
get with the plan. It's only you, Liberia, and Myanmar that are still using imperial measurements. 900 kilometers takes about 10 to 12 hours, depending on how often you take a break. So we took off at 1 o'clock in the morning and drove through the night. The highway between Melbourne and Sydney is pretty good. It's um, four-lane blacktop all the way and uh, 110 kilometres an hour all the way. So we stopped at roadhouses at weird times in the morning. Got up there, uh, got a really nice Airbnb, and I've got to thank Liz, who was our host there. Uh, Really good deal. We got a granny flat near where my family lives. Now, there's a couple of reasons why we were travelling up there. First one is to visit my sister, my brother-in-law, and my nephew, Billy, who's six now. So we caught up with them and did a lot of good things with them. The other reason is that my mother is quite old. She's 80 now and she's suffering a form of dementia, which means she forgets words and and can't really look after herself. She's got a carer that comes in three days a week and my sister Linda is her primary carer. And she also goes to a place called the Berger Centre in Bondi Junction, which does events and and, um, activities for elderly people, some of whom have dementia. It's a um, Jewish organisation who are very eclectic in their... um, Yeah, they let anybody in there who's eligible. And mum goes there twice a week and um, does activities, gets a a kosher meal and some snacks and and basically socialises there. So we did a a bit of that, um, just kind of... I, I took as much of the burden from my sister Linda as I could at the time because she deals with this day in day out all the time and because I'm 900 kilometers away I don't really have the ability to help any more than that so it was good that I did it uh caught up with mum we had a good time there was a weird event too which is kind of cool uh we went to her favorite uh sporting club now there's a it's like a big place that has poker machines and does meals and entertainment and raises money for the Marubra Seals Life Saving Club. It's across the road from the one of the most beautiful beaches in Sydney. Marubra is one of the ones that all the tourists haven't discovered yet. Uh, but it's still a great beach, terrific surfing there. If you go to Sydney from overseas and you're into that kind of thing, forget Bondi, forget Coogee. They're touristed to the max and they're fucking horrible because of that. Head a few kilometres south and go to Maroubra because it's much, much better. So we went to the Maroubra Seals Club and they had a raffle where they were raffling off seafood. Um, they give you uh, basically a foam cooler, which is about the size to carry a, a six-pack of booze, a six-pack of beers maybe. And uh, you win one of those full of prawns and a bunch of seafood fillets, so basically fish fillets. So we're there, we're having a nice meal there. It's pretty cheap food because the poker machine subsidised the food there. And ended up winning four of those. So we got four foam coolers full of prawns and a shit tonne of salmon and whiting fillets. So we carry those back and my sister and brother-in-law decide they're going to have an early birthday party for me. So we went up to the flat where they live with them, with my sister's mother-in-law, Faye, and had a really great feast. An enormous mountain of prawns and salads and fish and all sorts of things. It was a really nice night and had a terrific time. So we caught up and did that and that was really marvellous. Went to some of my usual haunts in Sydney, including Gould's Book Arcade, which is this enormous kind of warehouse in an inner suburb called Newtown, which is packed with old books. 
some of them date back to the 1940s. It's you know, it's dusty, it's disorganised, it's stacked high and crazy. It's in categories, which is useful. So um, I went there and got some stuff there. We um, went to my usual Mecca, and I apologise to any Islamic people who are listening, in Sydney, which is Harry's Cafe de Wheels, which is the pie cart down by the harbour that does meat pies and has been doing them since World War Two. And, um, yeah, we, we went out, we did a whole bunch of things, we looked at, saw some of the changes to Sydney, some of which are nice and some of which aren't. The ones that aren't involve the new casino, the ones that are partly involve the park next to the casino, which is right on the harbour. But um, it's my hometown, so... I haven't lived there since about 1990, and one of the things about it is that it's changing. Every time I come back, it's changed a lot. And even though the cities are palimpsests, they're layered on older things. So you get layers of old, then they rip down some of the old and put new, but some of the old survive. So a city after a period of time becomes a bunch of chronological layers. And so some of the old places I like are still there, but some of them are gone. Um, I Every time I go there, I show sell new new things that uh, I haven't shown before about my life in Sydney. And uh, that's, that's kind of fun too. It's really nice revisiting and seeing, yes, that's survived. I'm so glad that that particular thing has survived. And then you also get that sadness about, oh, that's gone. And I suppose that that's the nature of um, anybody over a period of time. The things you love, some of them survive in a place, some of them don't. But you still have the memories of it and you're still in a weird and really oddly satisfying way. You kind of become a part of the history. Your memories of a place become part of the history of that place. And it's it's a really kind of nice place to be at. Yeah, I've been on... This is my... <laughs> I'm in my 60th year now, and that's kind of awesome and, and terrifying both at the same time. But nonetheless, you have that sense of having known a place over a number of decades. And I'm really comfortable with that. I really like that. I like the fact that I remember what Sydney was like in the 1970s, 80s and 90s, and to a certain extent, the 1960s. And... It's a town I love very much. It's a town that's being changed detrimentally by greed and real estate agents, as indeed are a lot of major cities in the world. The things that you like about a city are not to do with real estate prices. And the fact that a home on the harbour in Sydney now is $6 million is something that awes and, and appalls me both at the same time. Neoliberalism is not doing us any favours and that's just a little political rant there but it was great to cruise around Sal and I did some odd things there we cruised around um, some beachside suburbs at three in the morning because we were both awake our sleep cycles were ruined by that early trip to Sydney Um, and I got to show her a few things she hadn't seen which was kind of cool and I really did have a nice time and a nice chill out and I was there for my family too, which is a very important thing. And it's something that hasn't always been a big part of my life, but it's something that I'm at the stage of my life where I find that really comforting. And I find the fact that I'm able to help some of the people I love is something that 
changes the way I see myself. And it's all it's all very cool. But um, to get back to movie-related stuff, I did see a few films since the last time we spoke. And I'm just going to bring up the letterbox now and take a look at that uh, while it loads. Um, I did re-watch Pontypool, the movie from 2008 starring Stephen McCaddy, which is a horror film, an intelligent horror film, which has got some kind of splattery gore, but it doesn't have jump scares. It doesn't have anything really um icky in it to a certain extent and it's got some very fine acting in it uh if you have i may well do Pontypool as a part of martian driving podcast at some time in the future because i really like it it's um low budget but it's a very nice piece of work if you haven't seen it i suggest that you check that out uh the only other thing i really want to talk about that i saw is we, Liz Travaskis and I did the radio gig again, uh, as we do every fortnight. And we decided to do Gaslight, the Charles Boyer, Ingrid Bergman, Joseph Cotton movie from 1944. And we had a lot to say about that movie. It's a movie that plays particularly well to a 21st century audience because it's about an abusive relationship. And it's one of the first movies that hits that particular... Um, subject matter pretty hard it's uh, set in Edwardian times in London and Italy to a certain extent and it's a nice little uh, mystery thriller apart from that Ingrid Bergman won an Academy Award as Best Actress for the role and I'm holding back on talking more about that because I am at some stage in the future going to talk about it on Paleo Cinema even though I have talked about it on the radio with Liz I think there's a lot of good stuff there and it's a movie that I do want to discuss in detail with you guys. So that's about it for what I've been watching. So what I'm going to do is take another break. And when I get back, we're doing these in reverse chronological order. And we're going to talk about the 1968 satirical comedy, Putney Swope, starring Arnold Johnson and Antonio Fargus, directed by Robert Downey Sr., I'd like you to meet Dr. Alden Weasley. Dr. Weasley is one of the most respected motivational researchers in the country. Harvey's beer has dropped 84%. So Dr. Weasley will tell us how the American public really feels about beer. Dr. Weasley. Beer is for men who doubt their masculinity. That's why it's so popular at sporting events and poker games. On a superficial level, a glass of beer is a cool, soothing beverage. But in reality, a glass of beer is pee-pee dicky. That's oh, it. Beautiful. 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 Pee-pee dicky. We paid for that? 28000 and we got off easy. The man made some very perceptive statements. I got it. Make it big with Harvey's beer. Big foam. You get a big bang out of it. Big, proud head. It's big, and it lasts long. You know, you're it's about as subtle as an elephant in the heat. That's great. We'll show an elephant sipping Harvey's beer at the circuit. It's obscene. Don't moralize, Elias. We're committed to Harvey's beer. I'm committed to myself. Harvey's beer is the worst beer on the market. It's a loser. Get rid of it. There are no losers. Every product has potential. It's a stiff. 
No, no, don't say that. There's no such thing. You're a stiff. I'll not tolerate your self-indulgence. When your father comes in, I'm going to tell exactly what you've said. Just because you were here when my old man started this agency, you know, that doesn't alter the facts. You played so many sides of the fence, you don't know where the fence is anymore. I know my job. Oh, that's beautiful. If it weren't for your father, you'd be on welfare. 60000 a year, and all you can do is wreck the joint. He's right. He's not creative. But he knows the rules, and you got to know the rules before you can break the rules. Right. There's no respect anymore. He's right, Nathan. You did your tango 30 years ago. Fascist. Duck Hunter loses his rifle. Walks seven miles to a cat house. Knocks on the door. The door opens, and Madam says, Who sent you? He says, In the 40s, it was Judy Canova and Victor Mature. In the 50s... It was Christine Jorgensen and James Dean. In the 60s, it was Smith and Wesson. Putney Swope is a 1969, I misstated it as 1968, but it's a 1969 absurdist um, comedy directed by, and written by Robert Downey Sr. starring Arnold Johnson as the titular character Putney Swope, who was the musical director for an advertising agency. And uh, when the owner of the advertising agency, whose name is Elias, dies on uh, a boardroom table. According to the bylaws of the agency, they have to um, vote on who's going to lead the agency. So names are put into a hat. And because everybody thought that everybody else wouldn't pick him, they all picked Putney Swope, who's a kind of middle-aged black guy with a beard, who immediately sacks a lot of them and starts changing the agency he changes the name of it to truth and soul and changes the way advertising is done i mean this can be people have seen mad men know the kind of milieu that they're satirizing in this particular movie and they're also talking a lot about white guilt um black power movement a whole bunch of other issues of the time which are kind of cool and um even though there are politically incorrect moments in this. So it is a kind of raw edge, low budget, um, non-studio picture from the 1960s. So it is going to kind of have bits of it that um, don't align with our current belief systems. It's still very funny and it's still a lot of fun to um, re-watch. In fact, it's on YouTube. If you type in Putney Swope, you will be able to watch the whole movie on YouTube. So you might want to do that. Now, Robert Daly Sr., of course father of Robert Downey Jr. He made a whole bunch of um, low-budget movies. He did some TV work as a director and a writer, and as an actor as well. He's in Magnolia, for instance, amongst other things. And um, there, there is a lot of um, information about drug use and how that affected uh, his son's life, and to a detriment, of course, because Robert Downey Jr. being a very talented actor who's now making Boku Bucks with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, did have uh, a number of issues which kind of can be traced back to his upbringing. But we'll kind of leave that aside for a little bit and talk about the movie in isolation. As I said, there were politically incorrect moments in it. There's a Chinese client who lets off fireworks in the office randomly. Antonio Fargas goes around... Um, dressed as an Arab wearing a kafia and an agal on his head you know, head, Arab headdresses and things like that and Swope says to him at one stage who do you think you are, Lawrence of Nigeria? so there's a lot of um, kind of incorrect, politically incorrect stuff and Swope starts making 
the kind of commercials that people might actually want to see and is tremendously successful at it. He tells the clients basically, give me a shit ton of money, tell me what you want your product to do and shut the fuck up. And all of the money that he's given by the clients is in cash, in bags, and they put it in a great big glass case down in the basement, as you do. Now, as I said, this is a relatively low-budget movie. Most of the movies in black and white. In fact, that's the thing that these two movies I'm going to talk about this time have in common. They both have parts of the movie in black and white and parts of it in colour. I'll talk about Bonjour Tristesse and how that approaches that kind of conceit when I talk about it. But in Putney Swope, some of the ads are in colour and they really pop and they're really silly. Uh, if, for instance, there's a breakfast food called Ethereal Cereal, which... Uh, Putney Swope's agency Truth and Soul creates an ad for and I'll just play the ad for you to give you a bit of an idea where this movie is coming from Jim Karanga of Watts, California is eating a bowl of ethereal cereal the heavenly breakfast food Jim, did you know that ethereal cereal has twice as much vitamin B as any other leading cereal? Ethereal also has the added punch of 0.002 ESP units of pectin. No shit. So basically the movie's satirising a, a number of things, all of which well deserve being satirised. In fact, we need some satirical comedy that really hits these kind of targets these days. Um, according to Wikipedia, it satirises advertising world, the portrayal of race in Hollywood films, the white power structure, and the nature of corporate corruption. Now, in a time where there's a lot of controversy about the live-action remake of Ghost in the Shell, using um, white actors to portray well-known Asian characters... This is a very timely film in a number of ways. Um, I, I like it for a number of reasons. I like the fact that they have um, a short person as the President of the United States, uh, a, a short person of the statue that used to be called a midget, uh, and his wife is as well. And they're shown to be kind of nice people. They're, they're corrupt as all fuck, and they're um, quite adventurous in their love life. But, you know, they're, they're shown to be uh, people who... You know, get it on with each other, and uh, there's also a Henry Kissinger um, satire mixed in there as well. If you know American history in the 1960s, and it's, it still seems weird to say American history uh, in the 1960s, then this movie is really cool. There's a whole bunch of different stuff. There's a Robert. There's an actor I like called Robert Start who uh, represents the Audie Murphy Toy Company, and they sell war toys. But Truth and Soul have decided that they don't want to um, advertise tobacco, alcohol, or war toys. So, you know, that's kind of cool too. And it's only when they kind of go against that moral stance that things start to get hit, you know, the shit starts to hit the fan for the agency and for the people involved. As, as I said, it's a very, very broad satire Subtlety is nothing at all what this movie is about. Um, I, I like the ads too. The ads are pretty good. There's an ad for Lucky Airlines, which has a prolonged scene of um, airline stewardesses on trampolines in an aeroplane wearing see-through tops. And uh, the advertising is basically that on Lucky Airlines, there's a raffle aboard the plane 
and the lucky man who wins the raffle gets to have an orgy in the trampoline part of the plane with these attractive stewardesses. And yes, that's politically incorrect and it's um, kind of totally unworthy, but there's a part of it that I kind of like because that's the sort of sick and twisted person that I am. And I'd like to think that if Lucky Airlines was going now, they'd have three Hemsworth brothers um, topless on a, a different flight in the trampoline and the female, or even gay male, um, winner of the raffle would get to have an orgy on the trampoline with the Hemsworth brothers. But nonetheless, um, it, it's one of those things that kind of satirises that um, attitude to corporate bullshitting to sell product. And that still goes on a lot these days. And with the ascendancy of Bernie Sanders, we're kind of getting back to those values of the 1960s in a, a, you know, a changed but parallel way, which is kind of interesting for me. Uh, there's an increasing knowledge, and, and the Panama Papers um, give us a bit of light on this, on how the ultra-rich are basically turning us all into serfs. And even here in Australia, there's um, a lot of talk about the power wielded by financial institutions in the political process. And so a movie like Putty Swope, which basically takes the piss out of that power structure, even while acknowledging that the, there's a corruption that goes along with advertising as a product. Um, there's a kind of prostitution aspect to being um, in advertising where you've got to basically pretend to like something and pretend that something is better than it is and pretend to enjoy something you don't necessarily enjoy in order to sell a client's product. And Putney Swope fully acknowledges that. Uh, the movie has a whole bunch of very funny lines and it's got a whole bunch of... Uh, Mel Brooks turns up, in fact, in one scene, which is kind of interesting as well. And uh, thank you to the person on Facebook, and I forget who it was who reminded me that Mel Brooks is in this movie. Uh, we also have Alan Garfield, an um, actor known from a number of cult films, including one of my favourites, Get Crazy. And, of course, the redoubtable Antonio Fuggis, who people mostly know for playing Huggy Bear and Starsky and Hutch, but who also did a whole bunch of exploitation movies. And I haven't seen Antonio Fuggis do anything that I didn't like. Now, Arnold Johnson, who played Putney Swope, this is one of his early um, film roles. According to Robert Downey Sr., um, he couldn't remember his lines very well. Now, this is according to, to Downey. So Downey dubbed the lines himself for the character of Putney Swope. How accurate that is or not, I don't know, but um, the kind of gravelly-voiced you know, voice of Putney Swope really is part of the fun in this movie because he's... Uh, there are times when the character dresses up like Fidel Castro, for instance. There are other times when he does the whole suit thing, the Madison Avenue Brooks Brothers suit thing and, and other stuff like that. There's also the scene I played at the start of the podcast where um, the guy talks about the beer and how beer is actually urine and it's only for men who are doubt their masculinity. That character is kind of fun because he's kind of um, he's in a motorcycle helmet, gets off a helicopter in New York, wearing a motorcycle jacket with Mensa written across the back of it, which is kind of cool. There's lots of little sight gags and bits and pieces in this movie that make it interesting. So, uh, if, as I said, it is on YouTube, so you really should check it out and uh, 
So have a look at it. There are going to be references that go past you. That joke that the guy did in the clip I played about Victor Mature and Judy Canover and Christine Jorgensen and James Dean, all that kind of stuff. They're dated references now, but for people who like the history of cinema, those kind of things are, are the stuff you look for. You kind of go, okay, yeah, I know who Judy Canova was. I know who Victor Mature was. I know who Christine Jorgensen was. And the progression of the joke is funny because of that. This was a movie I heard about long before I ever saw it as well. Uh, I, I kind of, I've always had an interest in kind of American, not necessarily B-movies, but alternative movies. And when you look up the reference books on this, Putney Swipe was one of the movies that comes up. In fact, I also saw it mentioned in a Playboy magazine as well uh, as a movie to watch and uh, a, a good, solid satire. So there's... I mean, that's one of the fun things about being a movie buff. When you get movies like that, that you, you know the name of them and you lock, you put them away in that filing cabinet between your ears. And when the movie becomes available by some means or it's on TV or it's on the streaming service or you find it on YouTube and things like that, you automatically lock into it and go, okay, yeah, that's one movie that I wanted to see that I haven't. And I'm sure all of us have those lists. Uh, let me know what's on your list of movies that you haven't seen that you really want to. Not necessarily a list of shame because there's so little time to watch movies in life and there are so many movies now. Uh, so let me know on coldguru at gmail.com which movies you have in your memory bank that you haven't had a chance to see yet but you really want to. Not just mainstream shit like you know, in the next Fast and Furious movie, but the, the kind of older interesting quirky things that you've heard about you've had people recommend maybe even i've recommended it and that are really the kind of films that you want to see because i'm always interested in what other people have in that particular part of their memory that i also have a whole bunch of films in there are any number of them fortunately they're becoming more accessible now which is a lovely thing being able to say okay i want to see that film and i've got a little time spare i wonder if i can get it online and finding out, no, I can't get it online, but it's selling for eight bucks on DVD on eBay with free postage, which is more and more what I'm getting for films I want to see. And so I'll put a little of the Patreon money towards that and maybe talk about it on the podcast. In fact, that's what I'm doing next podcast as well. Uh, I've promised one of the Patreon subscribers, Elaine, that I would do Local Hero. Uh, the movie from uh, 1983, I think it is, the English film with Burt Lancaster in it. Um, and so I haven't been able to find a copy of it that will play on my DVD player illicitly. So I went onto eBay, and it's like six bucks with postage Australian. So I've bought it um, on eBay, and I'm waiting for it to be delivered. I'm going to be talking about Local Hero on the next Paleo Cinema podcast to fulfill that particular obligation. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. Uh, anyway, but just to summarise Putney Swope, it's a mad, it's a satire of the Mad Men worldview. Um, the character of Buck Swope, by the way, in Boogie Nights, played by Don Cheadle, is an homage to Putney Swope. Uh, it's, it's got some interesting approaches to um, advertising. In fact, some of the ads you'd really want to see, and you want to see the products too as well. Some of the acting is a bit broad, uh, and it's a little hard to find uh, a copy of it that doesn't have pop and crackle on it. But nonetheless, persevere with that and check it out because it's a, a bit of fun. It's a laugh. Uh, it's got a nice ending. I think it ends very well uh, with Antonio Fargus and a Molotov cocktail, but I won't give away any more than that. 
And it's um it's in that continuum of satirical movies that basically sticks it to the man and those kind of movies are always a lot of fun to enjoy. So I'm going to take a break. Now when I get back we're going to talk about a very, very different movie, Otto Preminger's nineteen fifty eight drama Bonjour Tristesse, based on a novel by Francois Sagan, starring Jean Seberg, David Niven and Deborah Carr. And after the races, he'll take me to dinner and dancing again. And on Thursday, to the tennis matches. And on Sunday, to the country. What a waste of time, dear Jacques. What a hopeless waste of time. I live with melancholy. My friend is vague distress. I wake up every morning and say bonjour tristesse he's attractive and he's nice and I'd like to warn him but he wouldn't understand that I can't feel anything he might be interested in because I'm surrounded by a wall an invisible wall made of memories I can't lose The street I walk is sadness My house has no address The letters that I write me begin Bonjour, tristesse The loss of a lover is pain Sharp and bitter to recall I've lost no casual lover I have no pain from which to recover I've lost me That is all My smile is void of laughter My kiss has no caress I'm faithful to my lover, my bitter sweet tristesse. Bonjour Tristesse is a 1958 drama movie directed by Otto Preminger and produced by Otto Preminger based on the 1954 novel by Francois Sagan, Bonjour Tristesse, which means Hello Sadness. Uh, Sagan was 18 when the novel was published, and it was very much an overnight sensation kind of um, novel. Uh, interesting character, Francois Sagan. I've just been doing a bit of research on her. She was bisexual, had relationships with men and women. She married a couple of times. She was addicted to cocaine and prescription pills and all sorts of other things. And in fact, there was a biographical film uh, in 2008 called Sagan based on her life. Um, yeah, she was a wild child and had her biggest success at the age of 18, which is never n- good for anybody, if you ask me. Um, you, you've got to kind of have that progression through life. And once you've peaked at 18, there's not a lot you can do and there's nowhere to really go when you peak a handful of years after puberty. But nonetheless, the um, movie based on the 
novel is great. It's, for a start, it starts out with the Saul Bass title sequence, and that's never a bad thing with the film. In fact, a couple of years ago, Sally and I saw this movie in the cinema. We went to Acme, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image in Melbourne, in Federation Square, and saw um, Bonjour Tristesse, and we both enjoyed it. She enjoyed it a lot, I enjoyed it a lot. And it's um, a beautiful film, like a Putney Swope, Parts of it are in black and white and parts of it in colour. The um, Before the flashback, the frame around the flashback where we see Cecile a year after the events that take place during the movie, that's in black and white. But the actual story itself, the core story, is in beautiful, vivid colour. Now, I'll get you the praise from the Wikipedia page for the novel, and that pretty much covers it. And it's a, a fairly simple story, but it's very well told. Okay, bring the page up. 17-year-old Cecile spends her summer on a villa in the French Riviera with her father and his mistress. Her father, Raymond, is a seductive, worldly, amoral man who has many affairs. His latest woman is woman friend is Elsa Mackenborg. She and Cecile get on well. When, Elise, when Elsa comes to the villa to spend her summer with Raymond, it's clear that she's the latest of many women who Cecile has seen her entire life with her father come and go very quickly. They're young, they're superficial and fashionable. Ramon excuses his philandering with an Oscar Wilde quote about sin. Sin is the only note of vivid colour that persists in the modern world. Cecile says, I believe that I could base my life on it, and accepts their lifestyle as typical. At 17, she's still somewhat naive and tries to disguise this by attempting to attract men of the same age as her father. Her love life is unsuccessful until she meets a man in her 20s, whom she has a romantic but ultimately dissatisfying relationship. Raymond, Elsa and Cecile are spending an uneventful summer together when Anne, until Anne Larson arrives by way of an earlier invitation from Raymond. A friend of Cecile's late mother, Anne is very different from Raymond's other girlfriend. She's cultured, educated, principal, intelligent and is his age. Raymond eventually leaves Elsa for Anne and the next morning Anne and Raymond announce their impending marriage. At first, Cecile admires Anne, but soon struggle begins between Cecile and Anne for Raymond's attention. The plot focuses on the relationship between the two women. Realising that Anne will do away with their carefree lifestyle, Cecile devises a plan to prevent the marriage. Now, I'm not going to go any further than that, but that pretty much covers it. Cecile's played by Jean Seberg, an uh, actress who had, like Francois Sagan to a certain extent, quite a tragic life you can look up and see the details she committed suicide at a, the age of about 42 i think it was uh and uh, took some pills and uh, let's see was she no she was actually 40 which is even worse um in 1979 she mysteriously disappeared and her partner a guy called Ahmed hasni told police that they had gone to a movie that night when he woke the next morning she was gone and again i'm reading from wikipedia after Seberg went missing, Hasney told police that he had known she was suicidal for some time. He claimed that she had attempted suicide in July 1979 by jumping in front of a Paris subway train. On September 8th, nine days after her disappearance, her decomposing body was found wrapped in a blanket in the back seat of a Renault, parked close to a Paris apartment. Police found a bottle of barbiturates, an empty mineral water bottle, and a note written in French from Seberg addressing her son. It read in part, Forgive me, I can no longer live with my nerves. Her death was ruled as a suicide. So, uh, Jean Seberg, uh, there's more to it than that, and you can read through it as well. She was harassed by the authorities for various reasons, and um, 
a talented actress. Uh, this there were criticisms of her in Bonjour Triste, saying that she basically read her lines rather than acted them. But I don't find that. I, th- I find it quite charming. Of course, she was in Breathless, the Jean-Luc Godard movie with um, Jean-Paul Belmondo a couple of years after this one. And before she made Bonjour Tristesse, she starred as Joan of Arc in St. Joan, another Otto Preminger movie, and was was quite good in that as well. Uh, she went on to do a number of other things. She did some comedies in America. She was... In between Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin in Paint Your Wagon, and I found it very charming in that film as well. But, um, yeah, ultimately, uh, A Tragic Life, which is one of those things that when you like an actor and you know the kind of things they went through, it kind of, can kind of affect you a little bit. And my viewing of Bonjour Tristesse was kind of flavoured in a, in a slightly bad way by that, but I still liked the movie a lot. Uh, there's lots of nice things in this film. It's beautifully shot. The music by Georges Auric, uh, a French composer, is very good. That singing that you hear in the clip that I played is Juliette Greco singing the theme song to Bonjour Tristesse. Now, uh, the the other supporting the cast is, is quite good, apart from Jean Seberg. David Niven plays the shallow Raymond very well. He's he's kind of got a, a slightly pathetic air about him which I'm told is not in the book but is something that does make the movie much more interesting um, now the thankless role in this one of course is Deborah Carr's Anne she has to play things pretty hard she doesn't like vulgarity and tells Cecile that very early after she arrives and there's a kind of brittleness to her portrayal of Anne which ultimately shows well, it, what it does is it educates the ultimate resolution to the film and is very much in love with Raymond. And she's a, a sophisticated person. She designs dresses. She has her own life and her own business and um, her own job. And nonetheless, she kind of disapproves of the lifestyle that Raymond and Cecile are living which is ultimately their choice. I mean, if you're into personal liberty, you can kind of see Anne as the villain of the piece, but I don't believe she is. I think she's has a different worldview and a different cultural approach and is... Um, n- yeah, nobody has an, an exactly sharp moral compass in this film. Cecile's kind of shallow and a rich girl wants to enjoy her life. She's flunked her... Um, courses at school before the summer started and doesn't particularly care that whether she passes or not she knows that she can get a man to support her and she's quite her father's quite wealthy so there's really no pressure on her to achieve things she wants to experience life and live it to its fullest um, now apart from those three there's also Marlene um, de playing Elsa and she's great in this she's vivid and vital and ditzy and interesting and um, when she's on the screen she's very very charming I mean there are three beautiful women in this movie and she's definitely one of them uh, her Elsa is, is kind of a gold digger but she's gives full value by being passionate and uh, she's very lucky at the casino she's yeah, she's not a deep thinker but she is 
You can definitely see why Ramon's interested in her. She's um, undemand. She's demanding in a way, but she's undemanding in other ways. And Marlene Demojo, who is still acting to this very day, she's uh, in her seventies and she's still acting. Uh, is, is just beautiful in this one. It's she's one of those characters. Um, who <laughs> her character unfortunately gets sunburned at one stage, and she gets a bit sooky about it. But um, nonetheless, she's. Definitely, yeah, she's kind of an over-the-top and broadly drawn character. But nonetheless, she's not, yeah, she doesn't have a mean bone in her body. And I think that that's kind of the saving grace of that character in particular. But as I said, very beautiful woman. Uh, there are a couple of other interesting actors in there. There's Roland Culver and Jean Kent playing the Lombards, some friends of Raymond's and business partners who um, have their own lifestyle there. Uh, the wife has young male chauffeurs, as she says, are her nephews. And uh, Roland Culver's character, Mr. Lombard, has his own interests. They're only together basically because of habit. But they've made an accommodation to life. And, and you know, you could, at a certain level, you can't criticise them for that. Then also you have the mother of the guy that Cecilia's seeing, a very interesting actor called Martita Hunt who people might remember as the mother of the vampire in Brides of Dracula, the early 1960s Hammer film, and where she plays the mother who ultimately gets turned into a vampire and is quite embarrassed about it. But Martita Hunt in this is, is quite interesting. She has a couple of nice scenes in there as well. There's some fine acting and some fine actors in this movie. And, of course, it was filmed on location and remember a couple of episodes ago I was talking about in God Created Women this one was filmed in the Côte d'Azur in Saint-Tropez before it got mega touristy and so you can see what the place was like at the time um, there's the beautiful Mediterranean Sea there are some kind of there's no beaches but there are rocks you can dive off and swim off and um, it's, it's just a beautiful part of the world and the house where Cecile and Raymond and Elsa are staying is beautiful. It's it was you know it's open to air, um, very simply done. It doesn't look dated either, which is kind of interesting. The the villa that they stay in is beautifully built and beautifully designed, and um, there's a lot of beauty in this film to hide the essential um, sadness of it. And of course, Bonjour Tristesse being the title, sadness is on the label of this particular movie. And the plot of the film is that kind of a plot that you would get from an 18-year-old girl. Uh, a tragic event happens in the life of Cecile and her father, Raymond, and Cecile can't seem to get over it. She's kind of, as she says in the movie, there's a wall between her and life, and she will never get over that wall, and she will just live her life in a facile way, not caring deeply about anything because of what happened. Now, that's the perspective of a teenage girl. She doesn't realise that even though the thing that happens in, during the film is a tragedy and, and she does have some input into that tragedy as a cause for it, ultimately, people heal. They learn from things and heal. And Cecile and, and perhaps Francois Sagan as well, at the time she wrote the novel, don't really have that perspective to say that that will happen and aren't really aware of the healing 
process that time fortunately gives us even if we fuck up enormously even if we destroy what we think our life is at a certain stage we make accommodations to that we come to terms with it a healthy person adapts and forgives themselves and forgives other people and starts to see things from a slightly different perspective which enables that healing process and Cecile and, and by association with Sagan at the time she wrote the novel, didn't realise that. And so it's written with a kind of tragic innocence, in a sense, in that um, she thinks that her life's going to be empty and shallow and she's got flattened effect and nothing's really going to touch her again in life. And, and that's not the lived experience of older people. I know people who do get to that stage and never move on. There are people who kind of inhabit the tragedies of their lives and use that to shield themselves from the world and will go to any lengths for that not to occur again and that's quite understandable but it's not healthy and Cecile a year after the events that happened on that summer is still in that kind of dealing with the process even though um, we think she thinks that she's never going to get over it. Ultimately, it's fairly obvious that as a character, she will. Now, Godard said that the character that Jean Seberg played in Breathless is a continuation of Cecile. But that's a kind of a facile thing to say because Cecile is a French girl. The character played by Jean Seberg in Breathless is an American girl. Their background isn't the same at all. But I think that what he was talking about is that he wanted that to kind of, after the events of Bonjour Tristes, I think partly what Godard was trying to do with Breathless was to show that healing process. And so there's a psychological continuation for the character, if not an actual character one. And, and that's kind of good. I saw this movie for the first time on TV when I was very young as well. It was on late night TV. And yes, I fell in love with Marlene Demogio. I fell in love with Gene Seberg. I found Deborah Carr's forthright and very threatening at the time. But the story sucked me in. I like frame stories. I mean, The Bad and the Beautiful, one of my favourite films is a frame story. And so is Bonjour Tristesse. Um, most of the events happen in flashback. And, and I, I kind of great fondness for that as a storytelling device and when I first saw this movie I was very impressed by it um, I think it's one of those movies that was kind of the first grown-up movie I saw I've mentioned this before but that you know because I grew up watching exploitation movies in cheap cinemas and things like that the first grown-up movies I saw were things like this one Bonjour Tristesse and Cabaret and other things and for me, they were profound eye-openers to see characters that weren't just cliches portrayed in movies, flawed characters and interesting characters and events that don't necessarily play out with a happy ending. That's, that was a big change for my viewpoint on fiction. Um, I, I know people that still feel if you don't get a happy ending, you don't get a resolution that has everything patly explained and they feel short-changed by a work of art. But increasingly, I'm more interested in the movies and, and the storytelling that doesn't do that. That 
leaves ambiguity and leaves um, open-endedness and you know, doesn't give us something that's feel good to walk out of the cinema or walk away from the TV screen with. And, you know, that's, that's probably a, a side of maturity on my part, though in numerous ways I'm deeply immature. But nonetheless, I, I like this film a lot. I like the beauty of it. I like the fact that it is Cecile's perspective on things and that we as an audience don't necessarily share her perspective even though we're being told the story. We don't ultimately agree with the inevitability and prolonged nature of her grieving process. And that's kind of... um, Yeah, that, that... kind of makes the movie work for me i can watch it every few years and and enjoy it i can enjoy the beauty and the dancing and the kind of carefree lifestyle and the tragedy of it and the flaws that exist in all of the characters with the possible exception of elsa cecile is flawed because of her youth and because of her upbringing raymond is an essentially amoral and kind of shallow man Anne has her own character flaws, which are based on her self-image. And, um, yeah, and ultimately those things clash together and end in tragedy. The movie's great. I mean, I like Premage's films. They're always, if nothing else, kind of interesting. And this one has beauty and charm. Uh, It's not anything like an American film in a lot of ways, even though it does have an American and two British stars in it. And it um, it, it just works for me. And it's a movie that I, I kind of... I will revisit again at some stage to kind of, you know, revisit the characters and, and see whether my perspective changes. That's one of the nice things about movies that you enjoy. Uh, it's, it's also a bit of a threat when you enjoy a movie as well. Watching it every few years and seeing how your viewpoint changes about the story and the characters is an interesting process. There are times when it doesn't work. You find the characters you liked and and admired and saw almost as role models at times are deeply flawed and obnoxious to you now. But that's the the beauty and and the kind of way you measure your own life based on movies in a sense if you don't grow past some of the characters of your youth then you're not growing but anyway I'm going to wrap up Bonjour Tristesse there I recommend that people see it it's a little hard to find at times but I believe that iTunes have it if you're interested though at a ridiculously inflated price in my opinion and um, if you're not a Preminger fan at all it's definitely one to see if you just like a good story as well But anyway, I'm going to um, take a break, and when I get back, I'm going to do a bit of feedback. J'avoue, j'en ai bavé, bavoue, mon amour. Avant d'avoir eu vent de vous, mon amour. Non. Nous, nous, 
à votre avis, qu'avons-nous vu De l'amour. De vous à moi, vous m'avez su en amour. Julia Greco's version of Serge Gainsbourg's La Javanese. Um, yeah, I've got a, bit, a little bit of feedback, which is kind of cool, and it's always a welcome and a nice thing. Uh, Philip Wadig sent me some, a message on Facebook saying, Love your show and looking forward to 182. This is me being remiss and, and not putting out the feedback. Another interesting thing to compare is how the writers of Gladiator and Spartacus handled the idea of gladiators who were enslaved together must face face to face just before they fight to the death. Example, Kirk Douglas and Woody Strode in Spartacus just before the match. I consider this a high drama and Gladiator is just another action film. I've got to agree with you, Phil. Um, Gladiator's got the spectacle, but it doesn't have the heart that Spartacus has. And even even the Ben-Hur has in, in some regards. Um, that The kind of character-based stuff was beautifully done in Spartacus, but then you had a director like Stanley Cooper compared to a director like Ridley Scott. And though Scott does the visuals very well, I'm not sure that um, depth is his thing, if you know what I mean. I think that um, at a certain kind of film, and I, I just saw his most recent film, uh, which is kind of good, but 
No, he just doesn't have what Kubrick had. And while I enjoyed The Martian, um, I think the things I enjoyed about it had very little to do with Ridley Scott. Um, I'll just check the other feedback. The other feedback is actually for Martian Drive-In Podcast. So I'll put that into the next episode, which is next week, of Martian Drive-In Podcast. So if you're waiting for feedback on Martian Drive-In, it'll be in there next week. And I'll also be drawing out the Patreon subscriber who gets the box full of stuff. Um, as I mentioned before on the podcast, if you're one of the Patreon subscribers, once a year on my birthday, I put together a, a bunch of movies and other movie memorabilia and stuff over the year and gift it to one of the subscribers on my birthday. I'm drawing that out between now and next week, and it'll be announced in the Martian Driving Podcast, and I'll contact the person who wins and arrange to send them the box of goodies then. But that's about it this time around. I really enjoyed these two movies. Um, revisiting them both was um, a lot of fun, and particularly Bonjour Tristesse. I'm really going to have to um, put that away and maybe watch it again in a few years because it's just a movie that I appreciate, and my appreciation changes. But anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you to everybody on Facebook who have sent me the hundreds of messages I've been getting saying happy birthday. It's a wonderful and a joyous thing to have social media inundate you with love from friends and, and future friends and Facebook friends and podcast friends and true friends and every kind of friend you can imagine. I've been getting little graphics. I've got pictures of George Reeves saying happy birthday dressed as Superman. i got midget dancing from Indian Bollywood films. I've got all sorts of wonderful stuff inundated on me during the birthday today. And that's a very groovy and a wonderful thing. So I really do appreciate it. And it's um, something that I promise I will never take for granted. Also got a, a wonderful call from my sister and brother-in-law this morning. So that was kind of cool too. But anyway, take care of yourselves. Look after yourselves. Watch good movies. Watch bad movies. Tell people the stuff you enjoy watching, please. Share the love. If you enjoy a film, share the love of it. People may say that it's a piece of shit, but that's okay. You've, you've done your bit. You've shared your enjoyment of it. And sometimes one person's piece of shit is another person's wonderfulness, which is something I fight with when people talk about Star Wars movies. But nonetheless, keep doing it and keep enjoying films. And uh, as usual, here are the credits in the style of movie credits. For the Patreon subscribers to the podcast. Take care of yourselves and I'll be back very soon. And now here are the podcast credits. I'd like to thank Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, our musical director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, um, our Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine, our Scientific Advisor, Julia, our Casting Director, Chris, our Camera Operator, Christopher, our Gaffer, Miss Jane, the Wardrobe Mistress, Tansy, our Foley Artist, Alyssa, our Location Scout, Mark, our Second Unit Director, Paul, our Special Makeup Effects Director, Tamora, the Donut Wrangler, Tim, the New York Unit Director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve Solomon, our werewolf consultant. Dylan, the goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Richard H., our set photographer. And the two extras, Mark D. and David L. Thank you to all of the podcast supporters. Mm-hmm.